Coming up on Self-Hosted 15, we help preppers get their toilet paper stockpiles in order. We also battle valiantly the WebSockets demon of reverse proxies. And I let you know why Chris has fear of missing out on Hassio. I'm Alex. I'm Chris. And this is Self-Hosted 15. So how many toilet paper rolls have you bought this week? I got two orders from Amazon in, actually, but just because I was afraid that the store would run out, not because I wanted to stockpile and I'm about to go on a road trip. (laughs) You're such a hoarder. I'm going to Denver and I don't want to run out halfway. (laughs) This is the thing, right? So I was recently uh, buying some parts to flush the coolant on my truck and I had to buy uh, six gallons of distilled water to do it. And the woman at the checkout looked at me like I was some crazy zombie prepper man. And I'm like, no, I'm just flushing the coolant on my truck. I'm not trying to be a hoarder here. <laughs> yeah. What would you be using that for? The thing is, is every time I'm leaving for a trip, I, I wish I had some sort of inventory management system. And I got a sense from the audience this week that they were feeling the same way, you know, whatever they might be prepping for. Yeah. I mean, it's no secret at the moment, the world's going coronavirus mad. And I think it makes sense to have some stocks of different sorts of provisions, you know, tins of beans, rice. Batteries. Yeah, all that kind of stuff, right? The the issue with buying so much stuff at once, though, is that it's really hard to keep track of when that stuff's going to expire and go bad in your cupboard. So I was browsing through the Home Assistant add-on store last night, and I saw Grocy, which is spelled G-R-O-C-Y, And this thing allows you to manage inventory of food, of batteries, of all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's an inventory management system specifically really for groceries, but you could use it for other things like uh, chores, like Alex said, batteries. But in here, uh, here's an example of cheese. There's three packs of cheese currently in the fridge. They expire at X amount of time. And then the system even has a price history chart in here and basic information about what you have in the inventory. I could really see people who like to track everything just super geeking out on this. And you can then use those constituent ingredients you have in the cupboard, in the fridge, whatever, as part of the meal plan and recipes function that this software has as well. It's pretty cool. Would you really find yourself, though, going in here, like when you eat a cookie, you go in here and remove one cookie from the inventory? Hell no. I think that's too granular for me, too. But I could see the equipment tracking being really useful. Well, for you, yeah. Who has which microphone? Who has which interface? That kind of stuff could be useful. Even where is it stored? Which storage bay is it in? Or which shelf in the studio garage is it on? That could be really useful. Or for you, which house? Is it in the one in wheels or is it the one that's bolted to the earth? Absolutely. Right now, we're trying to pack up things for the trip to Denver in the RV. And I realized that the heater I use while I am off grid is oh, it's in the garage here at the studio. And I almost left without it. And if I had a system like this, it's it's like checklist to the next level for me. And I could totally use that check in, check out for those kinds of important things. And you could put serial numbers in there. So if, God forbid, you needed that information for insurance purposes, it's all in one place. And of course, it's self-hosted, G-R-O-C-Y. We'll have a link in the show notes. The cool thing is if you go to their website, demo.grossy.info, they have a live link there with a demo account and data in the inventory for you to try before you set it up. I don't know exactly what the setup process is. I didn't try it yet, but I did find a guide. And I, I also will have a link in there to integrating in with Home Assistant. That might just be the better way to go. Yeah, Hassio is making it really easy to run a whole bunch of apps right now. And I'm kind of seeing how this Home Assistant, you know, 
image can become your one-stop portal to all of the apps in your network. Uh, you know, I talked a couple of episodes ago with Popey about not needing a GUI, but having like an app store to browse to find stuff sure is helpful for discovery. You know, I, I tell you what, it's not just that. Being able to pull all kinds of things into Home Assistant makes it really useful for other members of the family who maybe don't know all the URLs or don't don't remember which app to go to. So for this road trip that I just mentioned, I set up a tab in Home Assistant. And Alex, if you look, I put a screenshot in the show notes. I want you to check that out so you can see what I'm talking about. I'm using the picture elements card in Home Assistant to pull in over a dozen different webcam feeds of road conditions along our route to Denver. So from Oregon to Wyoming and Utah and and they're all in there. And so when I'm going down the road, Hadia only has one tab she has to check to let me know how the road conditions are. She doesn't have to go to each site because every state has a different UI with different functionality and crazy ways of displaying things. So I just threw it all in there. Isn't that neat? That's fantastic. That is so cool. It's just an example of how pulling things into Home Assistant, it's handy in multiple ways because it's convenient, obviously, but it makes it more approachable to others in the family too. I hadn't even considered doing that. I mean, obviously, I don't drive my house down the road on the regular, so... (laughs) Yeah, but now we just have one tab in Home Assistant. We check and we get all of the road conditions. And then if there's one that looks particularly bad, she can tap that and she will get the name of it. And then we could look it up more. We'd probably go to their website or go to their app. So there's all kinds of neat ways you can use Home Assistant to pull things in. The official add-ons are just getting out of control. I mean, there's you can run a DHCP server in Home Assistant with one click, DuckDNS, MariaDB, Samba shares. Uh, you can do your reverse proxy through Nginx, all through the Home Assistant UI. Mm-hmm. I pull all my WISE cameras in via the RTSP feeds along with Shinobi. I just have cards in Home Assistant that show them as well, which is just nice to, as a quick overview. Then there are the Home Assistant community add-ons, which are done mostly by Frank Nietzschehoff. Sorry if I said the name wrong. Uh, and there's a bunch of stuff in there. Grossy is one of them. Uh, InfluxDB, MQTT, Node-RED, Plex Media Server, Spotify Connect. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you can now host on your Home Assistant rig just through the web UI with a couple of clicks. It's really slick. I accidentally blew up my Home Assistant last night. What? I was taking the opportunity to rebuild it, you know. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. You have backups beyond backups, I thought. I know. So I do have a backup in Google Drive from literally yesterday, but I don't want to use it. And this might sound a bit strange to you, but I quite enjoy nuking and paving every now and again. And I don't do it with my desktop anymore because Linux is too good these days and I don't use Windows anymore, so I don't need to. Uh, So I've got to scratch that itch somehow. And it's a, it's a chance to apply all of the new lessons learned, get rid of the cruft, some of the things you set up but never finished, et cetera. You just, it's a blank slate. I've been thinking about doing the same thing, but I'm always worried that I won't get things 100% functional again, which is actually a good reason to, to do it because you have to learn those things and doing it over and over again, you definitely learn it. Well, if you put it in your wiki, Chris, along with your last will and testament. (laughs) It's more like, I don't know if I'll get it done before somebody in the family misses the uh, functionality. (laughs) That's very true. Uh, So if you're going to nuke and pave, what are you going to do? Are you going to run it out of a container or are you going to go the appliance Hasio SD card image route? I really don't know. 
I very much appreciate the simplicity of a very base simple OS I know how to manage, a Docker container that is just the application, in this case, Home Assistant, and it's a very simple setup that is reliable. However, every time you talk about <laughs> these these HassIO add-ons and the community stuff, I'm like feeling FOMO. I feel left out. I'm like, I wish I could try this stuff. And I know there's kind of a way I could do it, but the fact that I don't even fully understand what that way is, is just sort of a barrier. There is. It removes the barrier to entry. It's just a bunch of stuff you click. And I don't know, like I, I haven't really found any downsides to doing it this way, other than I have less control over how the container itself, and I guess by association, the other kind of containers are spun up, but I actually don't mind. You know, it's a dedicated VM on my ESXi box downstairs and it just does the job. I occasionally have to increase the disk space, but other than that, it's been bulletproof reliable. That might be it for me is I'm not necessarily doing this in a VM. I'm doing this on hardware that is doing many other things. It has many other containers that are doing important functional work and I don't really have a VM to dedicate or a box dedicated to it. I don't think you need one. So in the name of science, I believe, Chris, you should try Hasayo because I think once you do, you'll be like, hmm, this is really easy to just do a whole bunch of stuff. Mm, okay. Now you're speaking my language. You could do it the other way. And as an experienced admin, I think there's a lot of value in knowing how the nuts and bolts under the hood are working. But sometimes time is your enemy and this is less of an enemy. And if it's something that's popular, I should probably have some experience with it just to round out my ability to comment on it. Ah, dang it. The old do it for the show excuse. Why don't we answer a couple of questions? This is a good episode maybe to take a pause and answer some questions that have rolled in because Kyle has one sort of along this theme. He says, hey guys, big fan of the show. I've learned a lot so far. Do you have a tutorial or a guide you recommend for setting up a reverse proxy? I'm open to all options, Nginx, Traffic, etc., but I want a quality guide since I'm exposing stuff on my network to the internet. Thanks, Kyle. That's such a great point. I don't run my reverse proxy as an add-on in Home Assistant. You can, and it integrates really nicely, and it has Let's Encrypt automatically generating your SSL certificates and all the rest of it. I run the Linux server Let's Encrypt image on my main media VM, which is a separate VM from where Home Assistant runs. And that VM has about 20, 25 containers running on it. And it uses the local DNS of that Docker daemon to resolve the containers on that host. So I don't have to open a bunch of ports from those containers to be able to see be seen by the reverse proxy. Now, that sounds great until you start trying to run services that are no longer on that box like Home Assistant. And I ran into an issue last night with WebSockets. So I had the reverse proxy configuration working just fine. And then I loaded up Node-RED, which is one of the add-ons. You click the button, you install it, and it, it would load. But then the actual, I don't know what you call it, I guess the sockets underneath the WebSockets on the page wouldn't connect. And I thought to myself, hmm, how do I isolate this issue? Because, you know, being a a troubleshooting sort of chap. I like to understand where the problem is. And you think to yourself, right, is it a reverse proxy? Is it Node-RED? Is it Home Assistant? 
And you can isolate these things by going to the IP address of the server instead of the reverse proxy URL. So in my case, that was 192.168.whatever. And it worked perfectly. So I'm like, okay, cool. I now know it's a reverse proxy. Didn't help me find the answer, but I knew what the problem was. And uh, after maybe two, three, maybe more hours, I eventually discovered that WebSockets were required in both blocks, not just the API WebSockets section, but also the root of the web URL. Added two lines of config, restarted Let's Encrypt, and boom, we were off to the races. So I put the full details in a blog post over on my blog, and hopefully that saves somebody else some pain. Now, if you are looking to do a, a reverse proxy like I've done on my main media VM, I mentioned I was running the Linux server Let's Encrypt Nginx reverse proxy container. And uh, I've been running that for maybe for th two, three years at this point. Works great, really reliable. There's a bunch of pre-baked Nginx configuration files in a Git repo that the Linux server team maintain. And there is a fantastic blog post written by Aptalka, who's the guy that put most of the work into that uh, container. It's basically an Nginx starter guide. So if you're trying to figure out how do I expose my services securely to the internet without opening a whole bunch of ports in my firewall, this guide is the one that you want. It's from April 2019, but it's still as relevant today as it was then. Very nice. Thank you. We'll make sure to put links to that at selfhosted.show slash 15. So before we uh, roll off of Home Assistant completely... I want to throw a couple of problems I've had at you recently and also by extension the audience and just get people's take on this. I have a problem in Home Assistant where my automations from time to time just crap out. The one where it really matters is I have temperature sensors that are monitoring the temperature consistently. And when the temperature gets above, say, 73 degrees Fahrenheit, the heater's cut off. Well, sometimes that automation just stops working. And so I'll wake up in the middle of the night and it's like 85, 90 degrees in my bedroom and we're roasting because the automation failed. I don't know what that is. And then recently, my wife's phone and my phone using the Home Assistant app for iOS stopped connecting to our Home Assistant instance. On the same phone, you can go to the browser and bring up the Home Assistant UI in the browser but you can't connect via the apps. You get you get some sort of API error. These weird little issues. I wonder, are they related to being on a platform like ARM, like a, like a Raspberry Pi 4? Is it because it's a Raspberry Pi 4 home assistant server? And I don't know, maybe there was disk IO contention and something failed and it just breaks. Or would this be striking me if I was on a Core i7 system with plenty of CPUs and 32, 64 gigs of RAM. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if it's if it's something that I could fix with hardware, but doing OS updates, keeping Home Assistant fully up to date, keeping the app on the phone up to date, none of that has fixed it. The only thing that gets the automations working properly again is to restart Home Assistant or reboot the entire Raspberry Pi, whichever I choose, then my automations work. I don't remember what my issue was, but it was something along the lines of an automation not working. And I just set up an automation, funnily enough, to restart the container every day. I didn't do it in Home Assistant, though. I wrote a cron script that did it. But uh, I've run into that issue as well, where you just have to restart the container for what seems like no good reason. And 4 a.m. every day, bang, restarted. Couldn't tell the difference. 
So I was considering doing that, but I thought maybe that was just sort of the lazy hack way out. Well, it is. It's not really fixing the problem. It's fixing the symptom, isn't it? I could accept that it's just software in development and that this is a problem that just is internal to Home Assistant. But I think what plagues me is this this nagging question that I always come to. You hear me touch on it from time to time here on the show. Is it because I'm on a Raspberry Pi? Should I have done this on a proper x86 system. And I think maybe that's my bias because in in my world, the server is an x86 box, which is probably silly and outdated. The only thing I would say against the Pi is the SD card. It's the the SD card. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really like the fact that a production, and I say air quotes, production machine is running off an SD card. That just doesn't but then again, my 3D printer has been running Octoprint for the last year plus off an SD card. Absolutely fine. Yeah. But I don't see that as a critical piece of infrastructure like Home Assistant is in my house. I mean, if my 3D printer doesn't work, uh, oh well. If my home automation stuff stops working, that could be more frustrating. Yes, it is. And especially the more you end up relying on it. And I I can hear a lot of people writing in right now. I can hear their keyboards, their mechanical keyboards clacking, (laughs) telling me to get XYZ arm box and that it's so much better than the Raspberry Pi. But the truth of the matter is, is I think if I was going to jump off of a Raspberry Pi 4, I think I think I would jump to one of the x86 boxes that Wendell mentioned last week. It just seems like a better way to go. I, I just... I feel like I want to ride this thing out a little bit longer. So I'm hoping somebody can tell me that this they've had the same problem with automations. But it sounds like you kind of are confirming it. So maybe this is not Pi specific and that I should just buckle down and accept it. Cron job a reboot. I wish I could remember what it was, but it, I haven't had the issue since I switched to Haseo. So maybe that's more motivation for you to try it out. I don't know. Well, we got another bit of feedback to get to. This one comes in from Glenn, and he's telling us about Chenmon. Chenmon is a generator monitor. It's a little self-hosted program that operates on a Raspberry Pi, and it will relay the status of your generator. He says he uses it on his little 22-kilowatt generator across the water from where I'm at over in Port Orchard, which is a gorgeous area. He says it hosts a web page with the current status. It'll send an email or text message on changes. And you'll love this, Alex. It also has MQTT integration. Boom! <laughs> if I had a bell, I would ding it right now. I know. We need, an, <laughs> we need like an MQTT like sound effect. He likes the data, especially he likes to know when the power goes out. He says it's not really applicable to an RV, but it's still pretty cool, and it's an actively maintained Python project. And we'll have a link in the show notes. It doesn't support all generators, obviously, but it does support a fair amount. I have an Onan generator that does not have one of these boards in it that gives you any information. But you got to wonder if there's some way you could like add one. That'd be so cool. Now that I know this is data that is capturable, now I want it. Glenn is really, he's a, he's a man just like, he's a man of about data just like we are. Because look at this. He also has an open source app called Salt Level. Now, <laughs> this is so great. It's just, maybe it's a little more limited for people out there, but it, it monitors my water softener salt level. How fun is that? Like that is, and he wrote that and that's definitely, that's a Python project and he's definitely scratching his own itch there. You can hear my dad right now saying, how hard is it to lift the lid of the thing and look inside the thing and put more salt in the thing? I'm like, (laughs) that's not the point. (laughs) 
<laughs> See, my dad would love something like this because getting this just right was a point of pride for my dad growing up, and he didn't have the tools we have today. And then on top of that, he had a saltwater tank where he had built a whole bunch of monitoring around it, but it was really old school style, and none of it generated alerts. So my dad would be like, this is great, <laughs> but uh, has no need for it now. He says he's enjoyed the podcast and uh, has gotten into Home Assistant because we've been talking about it, which is really cool to hear. I hope he loves it. And he says he recommends anybody out there with a generator, go check out Genmon, see if it'll work for them. I want to check it out. I want my generator to do it now. Yeah, I wonder if you could hook up some current sensors or something just to the outputs of the generator. And I mean, th- th- this was the reason I included the feedback was because I know that you have such a reliance on them. They're not something that are, are at all part of my life, but uh, power is a constant concern for you. I'm always looking for some way to get power. I can't wait for the summer. How is that solar thing working out? Give us a quick solar update. Well, really, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest in the winter, it's not super sunny, but for one glorious day. Really? Yeah, I know, right? Surprise, surprise. (laughs) I do have the ability, although I don't think I can do it when I'm not on the network, but I have the ability to pull in information from the solar charge controller onto my phone. And one glorious day, we generated a, a surprising amount of power where the RV ran off solar for the entire day. But otherwise, it's just been little bits here and there. I'm looking at it, though, and I'm thinking in, in that day where we had really glorious sunshine, we definitely had spec'd it right. We had run the batteries down overnight using lights and using the furnace to about 82% or something like that. And um, then when the sun came out, by midday, we were back up at 100% and we were running completely off solar for one glorious day. By midday? Oh, yeah, yeah. So what, like three or four hours of sunlight? That's pretty amazing. It's probably a little more than that, but yeah, it was great. It was great. I got home and I thought, oh, I better start the generator. And I looked at the batteries and it was completely charged. I want to put some solar on the roof of my house, hearing things like that. I've always dreamed too about setting up solar on a studio and having all of the gear in the studio powered by solar or a battery bank, obviously. like a. How great would it be to mine Bitcoin literally for free? <laughs> that would be fantastic. Or Doge, you know, whatever it might be. Or or run your media server and your self-hosted servers off of some sort of green energy, whatever it might be. Dogecoin. I can't believe you went there. <laughs> <laughs> You'll say 2000 and late. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, the classics never die, Alex. <laughs> the classics. Uh, that one should. <laughs> yeah, it should. But really, I, I mean... I hope one day in the future to have like a server shack somewhere or something that I've set up that is powering a couple of home server systems, like a Plex box and some storage that runs off of solar. I think that'd be very cool. We should set up our own colo data center that is just a a solar powered self-hosting data center only. (laughs) So we got one more email to get to, but before we do that, maybe we should do an update on the self-hosted wiki. It's been a couple of episodes since we talked about that. Yeah, it has. Now we had a call with the uh, the sort of kind of air quotes core maintainers of the wiki uh, a couple of weeks ago, and talked about some of the tech decisions that we're going to use. And uh, right now we're looking at MK Docs. We're going to press ahead with that as the primary uh, technology stack, as it were with a view towards eventually moving towards Hugo once we get the search 
and the theme where we want it. But the primary thing we're looking for right now is content. We need people to go and submit pull requests. It can be a really short how-to guide. You know, here's how I flashed Tasmotor on this particular thing, or this is what I use to monitor my Plex media server. Or anything you've heard us mention on the show that you have an idea of how to do, write up a guide and then link it to us in the on the contact form. Yep. And we would like things to be in Markdown so that they're easily transposable between MK Docs and Hugo when the time comes. But if you open a pull request, we will give you uh, feedback if we need some changes. But more than likely, it'll just be stylistic stuff. The actual content itself, unless it's horrible. Fair enough. <laughs> unless it's horrible. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's if it's I bought this thing and flashed something onto it, and you should do it too. We might not accept that pull request. <laughs> we do incidentally need somebody to write a guide on how to do a pull request. There are lots of GitHub guides on how to do pull requests, but what you've got to remember is a lot of people in this community are coming to self-hosting stuff, not as Linux admins, but because they have bought a Synology or built an Unraid box and they're just learning and or, or home assistant users and they're learning Linux and they're learning this stuff for the first time. And they may not be familiar with stuff that as part of my day job, pull requests is, you know, something I do every day. And whilst I could write a guide, I would love a beginner to write a guide because a beginner's eyes are always going to be a lot wider than mine. And I think ultimately that's going to produce better content for everybody. Great point. That is, that is something we should try to keep in mind and make this as accessible to as many people as possible. All right, sir. I know we've got one more email into the show today. Do you want to get to it? Yeah, you're, you're a Windows guy, right? <laughs> At least for the last week. Yeah. Uh, so Daniel Braun writes in and he says, Hey guys, I've been planning to move my company off of Windows Server. Hooray! Now, the problem is that I'm in a remote area and to get support out here is a bit difficult, which is the reason I went with Windows in the first place. I know my way around Linux, but I don't really have the time to manage the server. Hmm, that's a tricky question. Yeah. What would be the distro and application you would recommend for Active Directory, file sharing and exchange? Thanks, PS. I really enjoy the show. Keep it up. Boy, I, I don't know if Daniel's going to want to hear this, but... I think maybe he should consider sticking with Windows. Yeah, you can't just build a box and let it rot. You do have to do some stuff to it every now and again. Yeah, and if the core functionality you want from that box is Active Directory, <laughs> I mean, you could definitely do it with Samba and LDAP. Absolutely, I have done it. Yeah, or Free IPA is another one, and Red Hat Seller Product IDM that does it if you want to use that. But yes. If you've already got Windows and you've already got Active Directory set up, my first inclination would probably be, even as a Linux guy, would be to stick with what you've got. Yeah. I think the real the real censure is that not only does he want Active Directory, but he wants Exchange-like functionality. And again, this is reproducible. Things like Zimbra, for example, could be deployed on Linux. It would search back to your free IPA LDAP directory, which could be sitting behind Samba, and you could achieve Active Directory file sharing and exchange-like functionality with something like Ubuntu LTS, free IPA in a VM, and Zimbra in a VM. You could absolutely do this. I, I just don't, I don't really see it. Um, I would probably just stick with Windows. Keep in mind, too, uh, I just got 
done with the WSL Comp, the Windows Subsystem for Linux conference. And something that was made clear to me is that this is coming to Windows Server as well. And so certain functionality like Ansible management, uh, Kubernetes support, and even SSH, just going to be table stakes for Windows Server soon. And it's going to be simpler and easier for Linux guys and gals to manage a Windows Server. And I, I, I wish I could tell you, Daniel, this is the time to do it because I made a living for a long time going in as a contractor and migrating people's Windows servers to Linux. But I don't think this is the one, sir. He could look at how he has it set up, perhaps make it more manageable by having the primary systems in a VM and have the base system be the virtualizer where you can do snapshots and things like that. So there's ways you could go about this and that base system could be a CentOS or an Ubuntu LTS machine. Don't forget, though, every time you add a layer, you also add complexity. So unless you are familiar with that kind of stuff, just be careful. And I think because you've written the phrase, I'm planning to move my company, I don't know whether it's a small business or whether it's a big one. I'm assuming it's sort of small to medium size. I'm assuming that it's probably you that's in charge. So just remember that when you get the phone call at 2 a.m. that something's on fire, you don't want to have to wade through nine layers of virtualization and abstraction to fix what would be a simple problem if you were just running on that host, bare metal, so to speak. And honestly, it might just be worth waiting a little while. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, there are entire organizations now that operate without something like Active Directory. And I know that sounds nuts, but it's becoming the new normal. And hosted services or ones you can host yourself, are a big part of that. And there's a shift happening in the industry. And if you just waited a couple of years even, you'd probably have a much clearer signal in which direction that's going. Yeah, that's a great point. The DevOps movement is really bridging that gap. And a lot of developers now are deploying their own authentication services that mean that single sign-on is a service that runs on a Kubernetes cluster somewhere. And you can do a bunch of interesting stuff there. Uh, I don't find it very interesting, but some people do. <laughs> <laughs> some of you guys do. Yeah. And they're out there. Um, if you want to get your question into the show, selfhosted.show slash contact or on Twitter or on the Telegram in our Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram channel, hashtag ask SSH, and then put your question in there. We'll try to keep an eye out for those and incorporate them in future episodes. We have a lot of questions that come in. So from time to time, we try to incorporate them in. Absolutely. And thank you very much to everybody that wrote in. And don't forget about Alex's reverse proxy setup guide at blog.ktz.me. And check out my site, chrislast.com, where I have a bunch of cool stuff there, like the Chris Last cast and links to other things I'm doing these days. And last but not least, check out the show on Twitter at Self Hosted Show. Stay safe, wash your hands. And that was Self Hosted episode 15.